From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and welcome to WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Leslie Norman is WNET's executive producer of national programming and has brought to the air many notable documentaries, including Boss, The Black Experience in Business, and G.I. Jews, Jewish Americans in World War II. Right now, she's working on several high-profile projects for air this spring, notably the upcoming four-part series, My Grandparents' War. Leslie, welcome to WNET Up Next. Well, thank you for having me, Tom. Now, My Grandparents' War is a very intriguing title. Just whose grandparents' war are we talking about? Well, we are talking about the Second World War, and we're talking about four very prominent actors, Helena Bonham Carter, Mark Rylance, Kristen Scott Thomas, and Carrie Mulligan. And they, in four separate hours, go and find out how their grandparents were involved in World War II and a lot of family secrets, a lot of information that they did not know. So it's history meets genealogy. Mm -hmm. Because we've begun to think about World War II as rather distant. The series really connects the World War II years with us and the present time in a very unique way. It does, because these are four actors who are contemporaries of most of ours, and yet the way that they learn about their family histories is quite connected. So we were delighted to work on this series with the British Production Company. Could you touch a bit on each of their stories? Maybe Helena Bonham Carter, she's the premiere episode. She is the premiere episode, and she is an amazing participant in this. Not only one side of her family, but actually both sides were involved in World War II and actually were World War II heroes. They did not fight in any battles, but between the, the two sides of the family, they saved uncounted lives. Her maternal grandfather was a Spanish diplomat. And he stamped hundreds of visas to help Jewish people escape the Holocaust as the Nazis invaded France. She also finds out that her paternal grandmother, was, who was a liberal politician, actually, and quite well-known, Lady Violet Bonham Carter. She was a pal, pal of Winston Churchill. She was, and she was, and she volunteered as an air raid warden and was also campaigning for women's rights back then. The kickoff episode, I think, is quite spectacular, and we tour with Helena Bonham Carter as she visits with relatives and historians to find out more about her family. They all meet other relatives that are descended either from the grandparents or cousins or even Mark Rylance in his episode. His father goes along with him. So it's a great multi-generational connection. It really is. And I think the thing that I personally love the most about it is that it's very emotional. There's a tear shed in every episode. So it's not just recited history by a third party. It is descendants really inhabiting the lives of their forebears. And that is amazing. And you feel it. Now, I mentioned Mark Rylance, and he had two grandparents in POW camps. The one that we focus on is his grandfather, Osmond Skinner, who was POW for almost four years. Mark Rylance goes back to where the camp was. And he relives some of the history. And the thing that I found the most moving about this hour was how, how much Mark Rylance appreciated 
the history of not only his family, but of the devastation of the Second World War. Because he's very much an anti-war activist. And I think he, he is indeed. Especially... Yeah, he is indeed. And I think that this episode and his travels really cemented some of those views. It's very upsetting, these, uh, these uh, accounts of this, this bombing. I've been, to, I've been to Japan, and I know many people, and uh, the horror of it's very difficult to talk about. Kristen Scott Thomas, again, a Navy grandparent, as I recall. Yes, a Navy grandparent and also a lovely hour. Her grandfather was a commanding officer in the Royal Navy. And there is a very, very detailed story about his time in the Navy at Dunkirk. He really saved multiple lives in his service. Yes, and also... We forget, again, history. The Russians were our allies uh, mm-hmm. in World War II. And there's a very moving scene in that episode with Kristen Scott Thomas where she encounters a Russian representative who presents an award on behalf of her grandfather. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yep. And, and, and Carrie Mulligan. Mull- yeah, she's, she's great. You know, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan. And, and I'm thinking you've really got these people. They're all really hot right now. Helena Bonham Carter, The Crown. Carrie Mulligan has two movies that she's nominated for Oscars. So she is a star of stars in this series. She is a star of stars and the youngest. Her grandfather from Wales was also in the Navy. And he was a real student of Japanese military history and was on a warship that was attacked by a kamikaze aircraft. So she travels to Japan because she wants to understand this military strategy and finds out a lot about the ages of the pilots, Mm -hmm. how young they were, and what happened to her grandfather when he arrived in Tokyo. But it's nice to know in that particular story that he survived that kamikaze attack. He did, although he lost one of his best friends. You talked about how moving it can be. And I was aware of these great scenes of discovery. They don't know necessarily the people that they are about to talk to or what that person's relationship is in their grandparents' lives. So there's this great sense of, I didn't know that about my grandparent, which is just great because they find out so much personal information in a way they hadn't. They do. And I think what you see is it's very, very genuine. And you feel it as they turn pages, as they read letters, as you see their reactions. And each hour, there's something that brings each actor to the brink of tears. And how did the series actually come to you to produce uh, for us here at PBS? We had been pitched an earlier iteration of it before it was made. And like many films and many series, it changed. So by the time it got back to us, it was in its final stages. And we were very persistent about pitching this to PBS. And the timing was right. And what specifically is your role in a case like this? I worked with the production company and the distributor in the UK to actually acquire the series. So working with the legal and the finance side. And then we worked very closely with the UK team on promotion. So we'll be building a website and we have a major publicity effort underway. As it gets closer, we'll be doing social media around it. So I work with all the ancillary teams at WNET to make that happen. 
And this is four Sundays in April, starting on April 4th, I believe. Eight o'clock on April 4th, yes. And I've heard hints that there may be more to come in the future. We certainly Uh, hope so. I mean, we love it. We love working with the UK executive producer, a fellow named Tom Anstice. And he and I have been in active dialogue about season two. So um, they are ramping up to shoot as soon as they secure their financing. Sounds wonderful. We're very optimistic and we have our fingers crossed that we'll be able to work on season two as well. Now, before we continue, we have a little audio of some of the voices that you'll hear in My Grandparents' War. So uh, let's listen for a minute. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. Both sets of my grandparents weren't conventional war heroes. She was always ahead of the game. She recognized what was happening to the Jews and she was out there, active. He risked a lot in doing those visas. When you believe that something is morally wrong, You have to stand up and say so. Gosh, why didn't I know this? How extraordinary history is, particularly this link of grandchildren and grandparents. Just a bit of my grandparents' war. Oh, it's bringing it all back. I'm so excited to see it actually air. Tell us about Inside the Met and and what's happening with that. Another one that I'm very excited. So Inside the Met is three hours and this project came to us from the team that had done the pbs series inside the vatican yeah they're great to work with oxford films wonderful and we were excited about this this was pre-covid they had access they had already secured everything by the time they came to us and we knew that it was going to be a fairly traditional what we call opstock observational documentary about what it's like to go behind the scenes at the Metropolitan Museum. Mm-hmm. And this film was turned upside down because the museum closed due to COVID and they had not finished, by any means, finished shooting. So we, I think they thought that we were going to pull the project because nobody knew how long the museum was going to be closed. And in fact, we decided to move ahead and we asked the production team to have anybody who was working, able to work inside the Met to shoot with their phones. So there's a lot of footage of the Met in darkness, of very limited staff, of uh, curators making masks. And the fact that the Met had to close down due to COVID canceled the gala, completely changed their financial picture. Nobody could go in for months. And it completely changed the tone of the documentary. It gets riveting at times because you understand what's at stake. And as we move through the shutdown and the preservation during COVID, the killing of George Floyd happens and the summer is also turned upside down in a different way. And the Met really has to look at its record on diversity and decide what to do. People are mad. And, you know, it's an amazing institution with some work to do uh, to move it forward, which they completely acknowledge. And then it does open back up in late summer, very limited though. And so the third episode is really about how, how does the Met move forward? Finances are more limited because they can't bring in as many people. Benefactors are being tasked with upping their donations. So it went from me just a traditional observational documentary mm-hmm. to quite a great drama. And very much current to what's going on. It's the Met as it is right now. It is indeed. And really, it was supposed to be about the Met as it celebrates its 150th birthday year and everything that went wrong, that, that that could go wrong, did go wrong quite tragically, but it's a resilient institution. 
you see it pivoting toward change and pivoting toward the 21st century as it reconciles its past. With the future unknown, was its survival in question? This is an exhibition install, Frozen in Time. This is a reminder that we can overcome. Then, the killing of George Floyd rocked America. People are mad at the institution, and I, I did not fully see that coming. The Met began to question its record on diversity. This has everything to do with the redefinition of what art museums are. On inclusion. You see so many pictures of men winning. On social justice. These objects were stolen. They were never intended to be in a space like the Met. The museum has had to retreat. Now it's trying to come back and wants to come back with what face? When the world unlocks, will there still be a place for the Metropolitan Museum of Art? And when can we look forward to seeing it? So the Met is two Fridays in May. Mm -hmm. The first two episodes will air on Friday, May 21st at 9 and then again at 10. And then the third episode airs on Friday, May 28th at 9. And another film that you're working on, which has great resonance today, is Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten. Can you address that? Yes. A hundred years ago, on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, the... Greenwood section of Tulsa, which was known as Black Wall Street, thriving businesses, home ownership, particular section of Tulsa was burned to the ground. A fair amount of the population was slaughtered. People had to flee for their lives. Every business was destroyed and no one was ever brought to justice. And in fact, most people, including native Tulsans and Oklahomans, never knew the real story of what happened in Tulsa over those two days. So the uh, Fire in the Forgotten is a look at Tulsa then and now on the anniversary, and, and it's airing on May 31st, so the exact 100-year anniversary. A white mob destroyed part of this city, which was the black community. Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma have never made amends for that. Until they obtain justice for the descendants, there can't be healing. That's going to be very compelling viewing. Check your local listings. There sometimes could be a change at PBS if something, sure. you know, if something happens or whatever. But sure. these are the air dates as we know them to be now. Why do you feel that all of these kinds of films are so important in our world today? Well, I think that we have more and more options as to what we're going to watch and how we're going to watch it. And PBS is still really the only what what we used to call the variety service. You get everything on PBS news, arts, public affairs, history, science. And I think that there are certain films that belong on PBS and PBS only. It's always been my feeling, and I've been doing this for a long, for a long time, that we give things the space to breathe. We give time where it's needed. We're not commercial, so we're uninterrupted. And what we bring to people that I think other networks and cable channels and streamers don't, just because they're structured differently, is we have this enormous amount of ancillary support and outreach. So mm -hmm. it's not a one and done. You know, you can 
watch it online with educational material at time. You can see outtakes. You can engage over a long period of time with our programming. And it goes way beyond broadcast because that's how we're structured. The phrase audience engagement, which may be actually new to some people, what is it and how do the efforts uh, play out? Audience engagement has evolved because we are now on our devices and we're on our devices a lot. And Facebook and Instagram, Reddit, these platforms enable us to get audiences that are far beyond our traditional audiences. And the audience engagement department is able to do really a 360 on attractions. So you can see something on your phone. You can get a younger viewer with a three-minute segment. You can screen when you want to screen. So it's much more holistic approach than Mm -hmm. just a traditional press release. And they work very closely with our web team because at this point, resources are being shared across platforms. So it's a very integrated effort now. Very interesting. You've been doing this a while. (laughs) (laughs) What what led you to become involved in, in film and documentary and television? Well, I got out of college and worked around, I had a liberal arts degree in in political science and, you know, that got me pretty much not great jobs. And I'd always loved to write. So I decided to go to school for, to grad school for journalism and that evolved into broadcast journalism. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I completed a semester, I knew I should be in in the film program, but there was no point in going back and starting over. So I knew I wanted to do long form I did a few months at Headline News back when it was really just getting started, but I was very, very lucky. I had interviewed at WGBH. They didn't have anything when I interviewed, but six months later, I was in back in Boston at Nova. That was my first job in public television, and I was at WGBH. Great, great place to have a first job. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like going to grad school again. Um, so it was a seven-year run, and then I went off and worked at other organizations. I was very, very lucky to work at Blackside Productions when Henry Hampton was still alive. And Eyes on the prize. I didn't work on Eyes, but that's the company, all right. Yeah. I worked on a science show for them because of my Nova background. Anyway, I did a little bit of a foray into cable a couple of times, but I kept coming back to PBS because I just, I love working on PBS productions. And I know you worked for a while with a producer that we've known very well at WNET and 13, David Grubin. Mr. Grubin, yep. I ran his production company for about six years. He is one of my favorite filmmakers. I feel that David has it all. He is a consummate professional. He's got a tremendous sense of story and direction, and he's also very practical. So I learned a lot from David, and I really I really loved working with him. He was a great guest in fundraising as well. He, yeah. <laughs> he was fascinating to hear him come in and talk about his films. Yeah, when, he's, when he's he an amazing it. person. What are some of the films you've worked on with David? Well, I arrived in the fall of 98, and um, Abraham and Mary Lincoln, A House Divided, was in full swing. We were developing Napoleon, the three-part series with Davillier Donegan. I was brought on right at the very beginning of The Secret Life of the Brain, which was with WNET. David also did The Jewish Americans and several other projects after I left. But those are, oh, and Kofi Annan, Center of the Storm. So those were the big ones during my time there. On the journalistic side, you were involved here at PBS and at WNET at, with Now, which had quite a run. I was. I felt very lucky because I was in, having worked hard, I was in, also in the right place at the right time for some of these. And John Seisloff was starting a new production company 
when Bill Moyers decided to step away from now, which he had been running and hosting, and David Brancaccio stepped in as the full-time host. Mm -hmm. And so John hired me to run Jumpstart Productions as the COO and also serve as the executive in charge of now. So I was in the David Brancaccio now for its full run, which is, I think it was about five years. It's terrific. And three Emmys came your way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I will say that that was an amazing public affairs team. And most of them went on to great other work. Many of them at WNET, they stayed for Need to Know and NewsHour Weekend. And others went to more long form. And then still others went back to the network. So it was a, a moment in time where John just was able to handpick a brilliant team that he had worked with, um, with Bill Moyers. And Leslie, what would you say your primary goals are as a public media producer in a general way? Oh boy. Um, or in a specific way. <laughs> well, you know, it depends on, on what, what goal we're talking about. When it Different comes to, films have different. Uh, yeah. When it comes to actually looking at films and projects, what I look at is, is the story compelling? Are the characters diverse and interesting? And is this something that PBS is going to support? PBS has to want what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So I look at it with that lens and it's always really in the end, it's about the story and the characters. And that's really what I, that gets me. I can work with a younger producer or I can work with a team that's not in New York City. All those are completely manageable hurdles, but it has to have a good story. Biggest challenges? Oh, always fundraising. We have a development department that is working so hard and they have so many mouths to feed. And I I appreciate them because they have really, particularly on um, Inside the Met and Tulsa, they have done an amazing job and they're super supportive. But fundraising is really hard. And PBS also has a lot of mouths to feed. So I always find that a challenge. I I raised all the money for Boss and it took me almost three years to do that. And I thought that would have been a no brainer, but it's just hard to raise money. Yes. And what would you say is the most satisfying part of what you do? I love working with producers and I love the process of, although I oversee, I'm not making these films these days, so I'm in an oversight role, but the more closely I can work with a producer on bringing a film to air, the happier I am. So I think the content piece is still the most satisfying. Satisfying because I like teamwork a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you have a small but mighty team. A small, but, <laughs> a small but mighty team. And when I work with a filmmaker, it's their team as well. Mm. To me, that's when the great ideas happen is when people are brainstorming together. What is it you like about working with producers? Every producer that I've worked with has great ideas, an enormous amount of energy, and really brings their their game to the table. So I think that by nature, production and filmmaking is a very collaborative field. And I enjoy hearing from producers about their vision. And I especially enjoy it when they're willing to share and and take input on how their vision can be can be implemented. What about someone who wants to enter the world of media, production, television, and film. Do you have any ideas, suggestions? 
I do. I mean, I get asked that a lot and I always have. First, it was from people who are just coming up behind me and now it's from their children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but the answer is the same. If you want a nine to five job, don't be a producer <laughs> um, because it's not Monday through Friday, nine to five. And I think to really get into storytelling in people's lives, you have to love it and you have to love it on your worst day. And I always ask young people to check that box first or not check it. But is this something you want to throw yourself into knowing that it's going to be long days and weekends? And if you're freelance, you may not know where your next job is coming from. And a lot of the work is freelance. If you want an incredible career and, you know, something that I have, I mean, I I couldn't imagine a different life for myself. So if you want that then journalism and filmmaking is your place. (laughs) That's a great set of ideas for anyone. Well, it's been great talking with you. Anything else I've left off the list? As always, I would just say that there are a million projects that are in development down the road that will be in the pipeline at some point. We need to see how they progress, but I feel very lucky that I have the job that I do so that I can work on these limited series, but also ongoing development. So you'll hear more about those Good. soon. And, but working from home has been okay? <laughs> I think we've all learned to adapt, right? It's hard to believe it's been a year, but at some point it all clicked in. And I think collectively WNET has managed to figure it out. And so I miss my colleagues for sure. But the actual work is getting done. Excellent. Well, we have been speaking with Leslie Norman, who's WNET's executive producer of National Programming. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Tom. And thanks also to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, our editor, Samantha Lobo, and our executive producer, Dana McBride. We'd also like to thank Hassan Williams for their special assistance with this episode. And thank you for listening. And join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. Of course, you're welcome to share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org. And of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design On Air Promotion and Fundraising Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart.